Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Welcome to episode 11. The topic I chose for this week's case was actually chosen on one of those weird trips down the rabbit hole while I was reading another article for last week's episode about John Wayne Gacy. At the bottom of an article I was reading on Ranker.com, which is one of my favorite time wasters, uh, there was an article on Ranker that I was reading. At the bottom of this article, there was a list that was like 10 disturbing movies based on real life murders or something along those lines. (laughs) And I immediately clicked on it and was like, oh, do tell. So there was a movie that was called Wolf Creek that was about a group of backpackers who were basically being hunted by a psycho killer in the Australian outback. I was like, that's a yikes for me. Who is it actually based on? And it turns out the real life story is even more horrifying than the movie plot. So this week we are traveling to the beautiful Belangelo State Forest in Australia to talk about Ivan Millette, a.k.a. the Backpacker Murders. In the 80s, Australia did a very successful tourism campaign where they had Paul Hogan, who later played Crocodile Dundee, basically show Americans how cool and fun Australia was. In the commercial, Paul says, I'll slip an extra shrimp on the barbie for you. He was, of course, adorable. And every American took that line and turned it into throw a shrimp on the barbie and just ran with it. I read this really interesting article that talked about how much Australians hate that phrase because they don't even actually say it. But thanks to this campaign, Americans are constantly saying it along with the whole a dingo ate my baby line. So basically, if you ever go to Australia, don't you dare ask them to throw a shrimp on the barbie for you. They're called prawns and you will respect them. Australia, I'm so sorry we're so obnoxious. Anyway. After this commercial aired, showing how beautiful and inexpensive it really was to travel to Australia, the tourism there exploded. Before this ad campaign, Australia was number 78 on Americans' most most desired travel spots. And after this campaign, it jumped clear up to number 7. So basically, the person who created this campaign probably deserved a promotion and a big fat bonus, in my opinion. One of the popular destinations for tourists was the Belangelo State Forest, located between Sydney and Canberra. There are plenty of hiking trails, camping spots, creeks for fishing, and trails for four-wheelers. And for a while, the forest was wildly popular for backpackers and outdoor lovers. Unfortunately, that didn't last long because in September of 1992, two hikers were found buried in a shallow grave. This led to a huge investigation and the discovery of multiple other bodies. You can't Google the words Belangelo State Forest without being flooded with stories about murder. And the entrance to this forest has a very beautiful sign that says, Welcome to Belangelo State Forest. And then a smaller sign below it that says, please be careful, which would be the opener of my movie if I made a horror movie about this forest. Before we can get into the murder investigation, we of course need to go back to the very beginning and talk about Ivan Millette. Ivan was born December 27, 1944, to Stephen and Margaret Millette. Stephen was a Croatian immigrant who worked on the wharfs in Sydney and eventually started his own tomato plantation. Margaret was a dedicated mother and worked hard raising their family. Ivan was the fifth oldest of 14 kids. 10 boys and 4 girls. Seriously? Margaret was working hard. What a brave soul. As the kids got older, Stephen got more and more strict, which I feel like you'd kind of have to do with 10 boys and 4 girls. It seems like there would be a lot of chaos there. And as the boys got older, they dropped out of school and started to working... As the kids got older, Stephen got more and more strict, which I feel like you'd kind of have to with 10 boys and 4 girls running wild. It seems like there would definitely be a lot of chaos there. And as the boys got older, they dropped out of school and went to work helping on the tomato plantation. When they got older, the Millette boys started to rebel. From what I've read in my investigoogling, it seems like the older Millette boys got along really well, but bullied some of the younger kids. Ivan's brother, George, who was was nine years younger than him, said, quote, I did not get on with him. 
He treated some of us quite badly and had a go at us. He'd belt you one or he'd bash you one. Which I think is, like, older brothers are often bullies to their younger brothers, but I think Ivan took it to another level and was a bit of the main bully in the family. Unfortunately, when Ivan was just 14, he was in a car with a few of his other siblings and they got in a car accident that killed one of his younger sisters. Ivan witnessed the whole thing and it seemed like it really had an effect on him. After the accident, Ivan became more violent and would attack small animals with a machete. Seven out of the ten Millette boys were known very well by police in their area because they got into a lot of trouble. Started off normal, troublemaker, teenage boy stuff, but it quickly escalated. By the time Ivan was 17, he was very well known by police and was sent to a juvenile... A ju- what? What, what, what was that word that just came out of my mouth? Juvenile Detention Center for six months for breaking and entering. Unfortunately, breaking and entering was just the beginning for Ivan. The Millette boys were given access to guns from a very young age, which isn't necessarily an issue. Plenty of people, especially if you grow up hunting or living on a farm, are around guns at a young age. But the issue comes in when there's no training or safety measures taken to teach these kids about how to properly handle a gun. I'll say it again so no one yells at me. Guns are fine. They just need to be handled with safety. Anyways, Ivan was no stranger to guns, and one night when he was 17, he was picked up by a taxi. And for no reason, without warning, he shot the driver with a shotgun. The driver, whose name was Neville Knight, survived, but was paralyzed from the waist down. The next day, Ivan bragged to his younger brother, Boris, that he'd shot this taxi driver and had absolutely no guilt about it. Boris said, quote, as soon as a gun got into the hands of that fool, life changed. Somehow police thought that another young man had been the one to shoot Neville, and when they showed up to question this other guy, his own older brother, Alan Dillon, Dillon Allen? Alan Dillon, took the fall and confessed to the crime because he believed that he was protecting his own younger brother. Ivan eventually told Boris that someone else was being looked at for this crime, and Boris was so scared and didn't want to see his brother go to jail, he didn't tell anyone what he knew. So the wrong man was convicted of shooting Neville, he served five years in prison, and 50 years later, yes, 50, 5-0, Boris Millette came forward and told the truth. So Ivan was free to keep screwing around and committing crimes for the next few years. When he was 19, he was sentenced to 18 months in prison, again for breaking and entering, when he robbed a grocery store, and then Ivan got out of jail for a month and then was arrested again for driving a stolen car. He was sentenced to two years of hard labor for that theft, and then right after completing that sentence, he was charged again with theft and got three more years in jail. In April of 1971, Ivan picked up two 18-year-old girls who had arrived on a train in Liverpool. Uh, It was the 70s, so hitchhiking was totally normal. It's not their fault that they trusted this guy who seemed like he was just being helpful. It's 2021 now, and let's put no hitchhiking ever in the official true crime creep rule book. Back to 1971, hitchhiking was fine. So Ivan picked up these two young women and told them that he would give them a ride, but when they got in the car, he threatened them with a knife and drove them into the forest. He bound and gagged these girls and raped at least one of them before he put them back into the car. These girls were absolute badasses and were able to convince him not to kill them, and since they followed his rules so far, I think he thought he was in the clear. So when they said that they wanted to stop at a gas station to get a drink, Ivan let them both go inside, again, badasses. They walked in the door and immediately told the gas station worker what happened. There were some people that were at the gas station who ran outside and tried to grab Ivan, but he quickly drove away. He didn't make it far because luckily the girls were able to remember his car and he was arrested and charged with two counts of kidnapping and rape. However, they didn't hold him in jail until his trial and he committed a few more petty crimes with some of his brothers. Basically, all the Millette boys were in and out of jail a bunch and didn't really seem to care if they went back, probably because they knew they would just get out again. 
Eventually, Ivan decided that he'd had enough of this in-and-out-of-prison lifestyle and he didn't want to go back, so he did what any normal person would do and faked his own death. Yep, he placed his shoes on a cliff by the ocean that the locals call the Gap, where, sadly, a lot of people commit suicide. So he left his shoes there, everyone assumed he jumped, and he fled to New Zealand where he stayed until 1974. Ivan's mom, Margaret, suffered a heart attack in April of 1974, and when Ivan found out about this, he went back to Australia to see her. Luckily, the police found out uh, that he was back. I read an article that said that one of his brothers actually called the police. I'm not sure if that's 100% true because I only saw it in a couple of places. But the police did find out, and they ended up arresting him at the hospital. This time, he wasn't able to run away and was forced to go to trial for the kidnapping and rape charges from back in 1971. Unfortunately, Ivan had a great lawyer, and when I say great, I mean he was a jerk who knew how to spin webs and sway the jury based on garbage stories. By sheer chance, the night before the trial, Ivan's lawyer, John Marsden, happened to run into the two girls Ivan had kidnapped at a gay bar. The next day in court, John outed these victims, and in a quote from his book, I Am What I Am, he said, quote, I suggested that her sexuality may have had something to do with what had occurred with Ivan Millette. Juries in those days were extremely prejudiced against gays and lesbians. End quote. I did a quick investigoogle about John Marsden and was shocked to find out that one of the things he was most well known for was his work as an LGBTQ activist, which seems a little odd to me. <laughs> um, so when he used this tactic against these poor victims, he himself was not yet out. And apparently later on in 2005, when John was diagnosed with cancer, he expressed some regrets about his success in getting Ivan cleared for these kidnapping and rape charges. And yeah, I honestly, I hope he felt guilty. I understand people need defense lawyers, but oh my gosh, like, I feel like it takes a very special kind of person to think they're doing a great thing by helping rapists get out of serving time. And I'll let you make up your own mind about someone outing these women and then using their sexuality against them and then later being known as like an LGBT activist. I would love to hear your opinion on that because I thought it was a little, it didn't make me feel super comfy. <laughs> um, anyways, back to the story. So as you probably figured out, Ivan's lawyer used his sneaky tactics and played on the jury's homophobia, and they ruled not guilty. So Ivan was free to go and become a full-blown monster. Somehow, Ivan stayed off the police's radar all the way until 1992. Like a lot of serial killers, at face value, Ivan came off very charming and was well-liked by a lot of people. He put on this mask of charm and good manners to hide what he really was. He didn't drink or smoke, and he really made a point to stay in good shape and take care of his body. In 1975, he got a job as a truck driver, and from what we know, he stayed out of trouble. To be totally honest, though, I wonder if there were people he murdered along that truck route that were just never connected with him, because we've heard of that way too many times. In my opinion, it just seems so unlikely that he would go from the criminal history that he had and then just completely stay out of trouble for almost 20 years and then suddenly go on a killing spree. That just doesn't add up for me. Not that he was a great guy and stayed out totally out of trouble. You'll see. <laughs> In the late 70s, Ivan met a young woman named Karen who he really liked. Ivan was 30 at this time and Karen was 17. Red flag number one. Karen was also six weeks pregnant at the time with Ivan's cousin's baby. Red flag number two. Eventually, Karen kicked the cousin to the curb and started officially dating Ivan, which probably made family re reunions really uncomfy, but anyways. Karen and Ivan moved in together and Ivan raised Karen's son as his own. When they eventually got married, none of Ivan's family attended their wedding. Shocking. Ivan began working for the Department of Main Roads, and he was still very particular about the way he looked and always felt like he needed to look perfect. He also became even more obsessed with guns and would meticulously clean his growing collection and started painting them camouflaged. He also expected their house to always be perfectly neat and organized, bordering on being obsessive about it. 
Stealing his cousin's baby mama wasn't enough for Ian, though, and he was on the prowl. He prowled all the way over to his brother Walter's wife, Maureen. They had an affair for a while, but Karen still stuck around. Then Ivan had another affair with another one of his brother's wives. Boris, who, remember, knew the secret about Ivan shooting the taxi driver, was married to a woman named Marilyn. Marilyn and Ivan had a very long affair, and, a Mar and Marilyn eventually got pregnant with Ivan's baby, a daughter that she named Lindsay. It seemed like for a while Boris tried to keep their family together and raise Lindsay as his own child, but eventually they did get divorced. For some reason, loyalty between the Millette brothers ran very deep, and they all remained very close. However, there were a few times where they had had enough of Ivan and his disaster of a life. <laughs> um, there was more than one occasion where one of the brothers, whose wives were having an affair with Ivan, showed up threatening him with a gun, and one of the times Maureen warned Ivan that Walter was pissed and was coming for him, so he ran away. This is where the whole putting a nice face on for everyone kind of comes into play. For Maureen and Marilyn, Ivan was like the better Millette brother. He was in better shape than their own Millette boys, he was tidy, he had good manners, etc., but they didn't have a clue what the hell his wife was going through. Um, Ivan was a totally different person behind closed doors. He was extremely jealous, which, like, really, dude, you're having 20 affairs, but you are jealous? Anyway, he was extremely controlling and would fly off the handle out of nowhere. Karen wasn't allowed to go anywhere without his permission and was expected to keep things in tip-top shape around the house. She had to uh, show him receipts for all of the groceries that she bought, and if anything was out of place, it would cause a huge explosion. It reminds me of that movie, I think it's with Sandra Bullock, where her psycho husband has to have, like, the cans perfectly organized in the cupboards and the hand towels hung just so. What is that movie called? I think it's Sleeping with the Enemy. Is that right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Anyway, poor Karen is trapped in hell with Ivan, but luckily she got out of there while he was away on a job. In retaliation, Ivan showed up to her parents' house and burned down their garage. He got over that pretty quickly, apparently, because after Karen left him, he started his relationship up with Marilyn again, who was no longer married to Boris. Eventually, Marilyn realized he wasn't as great as she thought and also kicked him to the curb because he refused to commit. It was around this time that Ivan began murdering hitchhikers. So like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, a lot of young people were traveling to Australia because it was inexpensive and there were plenty of outdoorsy adventures to get into. A lot of these young travelers would stay in hostels and then backpack around. James Gibson and Deborah Everest, who were both 19 years old and were from Melbourne, Australia, checked out of their hotel in Sydney on December 30th, 1989. They were planning on going to a festival in Albury, and they'd planned to meet up with some friends at the festival, but they never showed up. The day after they checked out of their hotel, a hiker found James's camera on the side of the road. This person didn't think much of it and took the camera home, thinking like, hey cool, free camera. However, the camera was reported a month later when the news came out that they'd also found James's empty backpack in the same area. The front flap of his backpack was cut off, but his name was written on the inside of it and that stayed intact. Friends and family reported them missing in the weeks following their disappearance, but police didn't think much of it. Simone, Sch Simone Smindel, who was 21 years old and was originally from Germany. She was planning on hitchhiking from Sydney to Melbourne to meet up with her mom, who was flying in from Germany so they could go on a camping trip together. Simone was last seen on January 20th, 1991 at a train station outside of Sydney. Her mom arrived at the airport in Sydney two days later, but Simone wasn't there to meet her like they'd planned. Simone's mom stayed in Australia for six weeks, hoping her daughter would turn up, but she was nowhere to be found. A German couple, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to try my best to get these names correct. Gabor Neugebauer, age 21, and Anya Habschied, age 20, 
were staying at the Backpackers Inn at Sydney's King Cross when they were last seen on December 26, 1991. They were planning to make the trip from Sydney to Darwin and then return home to Munich, but they never showed up for their flight. Caroline Clark, age 21, was from England, and Joanne Walters, age 22, was from South Wales. They'd both arrived in Australia separately, but became friends and then were traveling around together. They'd both been writing regularly to their families, letting them know their travel plans. The last their families heard, they were planning to travel to Victoria to make some money picking fruit and then travel on to another destination. Weeks went by and their families didn't hear from them, so they got police involved, and in April of 1992, connections were starting to be made between all of the different missing hitchhikers and backpackers. Five months later, in September of 1992, two runners discovered a decaying body in the Belangelo State Forest. The next day, police found a second body. They were able to, to determine through dental records that these bodies were Caroline and Joanne. The girls had been brutally murdered. Joanne had been stabbed 14 times in the neck, chest, and back. The damage to her back had severed her spine and would have paralyzed her. Caroline had been blindfolded and shot in the head 10 times and stabbed in the chest. Police later said that they believed Caroline had been used as target practice, which is why she had so many gunshot wounds, which makes my stomach turn. I, I hate that detail. Um, police searched the area for more evidence but didn't find anything until a year later in October of 1993. A man who was gathering firewood found the skeletal remains of James Gibson and Deborah, Deborah Everest. James had suffered at least eight stab wounds, including one wound that would have damaged his spinal cord, causing paralysis, and the other wounds would have damaged his lungs and heart. Deborah had been brutally stabbed once in the back and then beaten, causing fractures to her skull and her jaw. Police were surprised to identify James and Deborah because, remember, James's camera and backpack were found on the side of the road over 75 miles from where their bodies were found. A month later, in November of 1993, police found a fourth set of skeletal remains. Simone Schmindel had been stabbed at least eight times, two of which severed her spine. There was also clothing found near Simone's body that didn't belong to her. They were able to figure out that the clothing belonged to a, another missing hiker, Anya Habsheed. Anya and her boyfriend Gabor's skeletons were found on November 4th, 1993. Gabor had been shot six times and Anya had suffered multiple stab wounds and had been decapitated. There was an extensive search to try to find Anya's skull, but to this day, it's never been found. At this point, police had seven bodies that matched seven missing hitchhikers. They realized they were de dealing with a serial killer, and the search began. The victims had been all had bleh, sorry, going to start that over. The victims that had been stabbed were all stabbed in very similar ways, and the victims who had been shot had all been shot with a 22 caliber pistol. Most of the bodies showed signs of sexual assault and were buried face down in shallow graves. For a while, police suspected that there were two killers working together, since most of the bodies were pairs of two and had different murder weapons. Some had been shot, some had been stabbed. Police put out alerts asking for any witnesses and warned people against hitchhiking in this area. A ton of tips came flooding in, including a very helpful, helpful one from someone who narrowed down the suspect list by pointing to Ivan Millette. Paul Onions, who is such an icon and badass, came forward with a story of a narrow escape. Paul was ex-British Navy and had been backpacking through Australia in 1990. A man saw Paul hitchhiking and pulled over to offer him a ride. This man introduced himself as Bill, and Paul thought he seemed alright, so he hopped in the car. Suddenly, Bill pulled the car off the side of the road into a secluded area and told Paul that he needed to get some cassette tapes out of the back seat. So Paul started to feel suspicious and got out of the car with the excuse that he wanted to stretch his legs. They both got back in the front seat, and Bill had a revolver and a rope and told Paul this was a robbery. 
Paul knew he had to get out of there, so he jumped out and ran for his life. Bill fired a couple of shots at him that luckily missed, and Paul was able to frantically flag down another car and GTFO. Paul went to the police with a description of Bill and said that they that he wouldn't give up a lot of information about what he did personally, but he did say that he said that he did road work. The police couldn't do much and basically told Paul, sorry pal, there's nothing we can do to go off of a man named Bill who works for, like, the construction company. So he went home to the UK and tried to forget about this experience. He said he could never get the image of Bill standing next to the road with a stupid grin on his face out of his head. Luckily, years after the incident, when Paul heard about the bodies found in the same forest, he was able to come forward and give a description of Bill, who was actually Ivan Millette. During this time when tips were coming in, detectives were looking into old files searching for locals charged with sex crimes. This is when Ivan's name came up for his sexual assault charges back in the 70s. Police knew that Ivan sometimes went by the name Bill, and the red flags were shooting up like crazy. Police flew Paul Onions to Australia and presented him with 13 pictures of suspects. He chose Ivan Millette out of this lineup. Police also were able to track down two other hitchhikers who had called in tips about their own narrow escapes, and they were shown these pictures and also picked out Ivan and one of his brothers who looked very similar. The police also received a tip from one of Ivan's co-workers' girlfriends who could probably just smell the bad vibes from a mile away and felt like he should be questioned in the disappearances. The woman who picked up Paul when he escaped Ivan also identified Ivan in the lineup. And new rule for the official True Crime Creeps rulebook, if you have information, even if it seems tiny, call it in. Always call it in. Even if it doesn't seem significant. If you see something freaky happening on the side of the road, make a call. If you have bad vibes about your husband's weird coworker, make the freaking call. Okay. So the tips that were from some of his almost victims and witnesses, along with the kidnapping and rape allegations from 1971, gave police enough evidence to make their move to catch Ivan. Ivan was arrested on May 22, 1994, at the home he shared with his sister Shirley. While police were arresting Ivan and searching his house, 300 other officers were also searching some of the Millette brothers' um, homes and properties. Allegedly, when police showed up at Ivan's house, he mocked them and laughed at them, probably because he'd gotten away with so much over the years, he thought he was untouchable. Not today, Ivan. In his house, police found multiple guns, including a 22 caliber rifle that matched the weapon used in some of the murders. They also found a postcard addressed to Bill, along with firearm cartridges and electrical tape that were found at the crime scenes. Ivan also had some Indonesian currency, even though he had never before traveled to Indonesia, but guess who had been to Indonesia right before visiting Australia? Anya and Gabor, two of the victims that were found. The biggest win for police was when they found a bunch of camping equipment, clothing, and other items that definitely belonged to the, murder, to the murdered hitchhikers. Some of these items were found at Ivan's house, some of them were found at his siblings' houses, and there were even some of these items hidden in walls. People seem to hide weird crap in walls a lot. Send me an email if you've hidden weird crap in a wall. Or if you've found weird crap in a wall. I want to know. TGICrimeDay at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, since Ivan shared this house with his sister Shirley, police suspected she may have had something to do with the murders, but it was never proven. Ivan's younger brother George said, quote, Shirley was in on it. I can't really say Shirley did commit murder. All I can say is she was involved, end quote. On May 31st, 1994, Ivan was officially charged with seven counts of murder, the attack on Paul, and various weapons charges. His case went to trial in 1996, and after 16 weeks of listening to witnesses and, of course, listening to Ivan say that he had been framed, the jury found him guilty, and he was given six life sentences. Yay! He tried to appeal his case multiple times, but he was finally behind bars for good. That didn't stop him from trying, though. <laughs> in 1997, Ivan and one of his prison besties, a convicted drug dealer named George Savas, 
came up with what they thought was a perfectly planned prison break. Somehow the guards heard about this plan and were able to shut it down. It seemed that they had been planning it for weeks and definitely had outside help at the ready. The plan that was that one day when they were let out of their cells, they were going to attack the guards, tie them up, and steal their uniforms. Then they would run out to the perimeter fence where their outside associates would throw rope ladders over the wall, they'd hop the fence where the cars would be waiting, and they'd drive off into the sunset. From what I read, it sounds like the guards found out about this plan using recording devices, and they basically just overheard and put together the whole thing. They monitored everyone who visited them and picked up on special code words that they'd been using to talk about this plan. At the last minute, the plan was called off, and Ivan and George tried to rip up the notes and destroy the evidence of their plans. Ivan tore up the pages and tried to flush them down the toilet in his cell. You guys, the plan was not that complicated. Did you really need to have it spelled out on paper? Anyway, the plan was complicated, to say the least, and it was foiled. Ian basically was moved to a maximum security prison and wouldn't be allowed to be alone pretty much ever. George was questioned about the escape plan and was found dead in his cell the next morning from an apparent suicide. There's a lot more I could say on that alleged skate plan. I feel like I could do a whole, like, mini-episode about this, because there are a lot of theories that there was no plan, and it's possible that George didn't kill himself. I recommend you look into that. It's very interesting. If you want a mini-episode on that, uh, let me know. Over the years Ivan sat in prison, police came up with a lot of extra dirt on him. And while he was only ever convicted of seven murders, it's possible he had a lot more victims, which I feel like is a fair guess to make because, like I said earlier, it's doubtful he attacked those women in the 70s and then didn't cause any harm until the late 80s. Ivan is suspected in the disappearance of six Newcastle women and multiple other tourists, including visitors from Europe and Japan back in the 70s. Multiple people came forward after his arrest with rape allegations, and in the early 2000s, there were other crimes that were brought forward against Ivan, but none of them could be proven. In 2005, Ivan's lawyer that got him out of his rape charges in 1974 made a deathbed confession that he believed Ivan's sister Shirley had been an accomplice, an accomplice in the murders, but again, nothing ever came of it and nothing could be proven against her. Ivan always tried to maintain his innocence and was constantly coming up with ways to try to get an appeal. In January of 2009, when Ivan was 64 years old, he pulled one of the more unpleasant and unnecessary attempts at an appeal. One day during lunch, Ivan used a plastic serrated knife to cut off his pinky. What? No, why? <laughs> then he put his pinky in an envelope that was addressed to the High Court of Australia. Eventually, Ivan realized he was in over his head with his injury and was bleeding everywhere, so he got the attention of a guard and they took him up to a hospital. They were unable to reattach the pinky and just stitched him up and sent him back to jail. About this incident, John Duthorn, Dunthorn, uh, who was a Corrective Services Southwest Region Assistant Commissioner, said, quote, It's the work of a desperate man, and Ivan Millette is in the top echelon of desperate people. <laughs> that is one of the greatest quotes I've ever read. I'm going to use that. Like, I'm the top echelon of desperate for coffee. We shall no longer say he is thirsty. We shall say he's in the top echelon of desperate people. I love that so much. In another bizarre twist of the Millette family legacy, one of Ivan's great-nephews committed basically a copycat murder. In 2012, Ivan's great-nephew Matthew and his friend Cohen Klein uh, lured one of their classmates into the Belanglo State Forest. It was David Ocherlani's 17th birthday, and Matthew and Cohen told David they were going to go into the State Forest basically to celebrate his birthday, have some drinks, smoke some weed, you know, bro stuff. Sadly, these two monsters murdered David with an axe. Thankfully, they were both convicted of the crime, and Matthew was sentenced to 43 years in prison. He showed absolutely no remorse for committing the murder, and when they asked him why he did it, he said, quote, That's what the Millettes do. Yikes. While Ivan was serving his six life sentences, he was diagnosed with terminal stomach and 
uh, esophageal, oh my gosh, I knew I was going to get that wrong, esophageal cancer in May of 2019. He died in a Sydney prison on October 27th, 2019, when he was 74 years old. To this day, he is still described as Australia's most infamous killer. So, that is the story of Ivan Millet. It was quite the ride, and I hope you liked listening to it. If you did, you know what to do. Rate, review, subscribe. Also, I would really appreciate it if you like this podcast, if you could share it with your friends. Um, and I would love for you to join the Creep Squad over on Instagram at TGI Crime Day. Send me all your true crime-related and creepy stories at to TGICrimeDate at gmail.com. And don't forget, never hitchhike. Always call the cops with small tips and wash behind your ears or something. Bye!